Hey, Icon, Pastor Justin here uh, for the last time, at least for a while. Uh, this is my last Sunday here at Icon. Uh, I will likely be back to visit, uh, to guest preach from time to time, but uh, this is my last Sunday and uh, it is a, a difficult goodbye. This is not at all how we thought it was going to end, uh, but this is uh, what the Lord's been doing. And um, I just want to thank you uh, for two and a half years of great ministry. Some of you uh, I've known for even longer than that, uh, dating back to Doxa. Uh, and it's just been a great, great ride uh, for us. So thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. Thank you for letting me be your pastor. Thank you for letting me preach uh, for these last couple of years and start this church. Uh, you guys are in good hands with Josh and the elders and the leadership team and the staff, uh, I am confident in your future and, and thankful to have been a part of it. Uh, today, uh, I'm not preaching some like final thoughts from Uncle Justin kind of sermon. Uh, it is uh, Romans chapter seven, and, and that's fitting uh, that we would just do the next sermon in Romans seven uh, because Icon is not about me. Uh, it's about the gospel. It's about what God wants to do here in Seattle. And so uh, I'm, I'm anxious and, and grateful for the chance to jump into Romans 7. So let's do that. Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. That's what we're doing uh, this morning. So let's jump in. Paul says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means, right? Paul's going back to his rhetorical question frame. Right? He's done this uh, throughout chapter 6 and now into chapter 7, where he again built five chapters around how we as Christians are no longer under the law, but under grace because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. And so this is this huge paradigm shift, and Paul is arguing for the role that the law has played in the lives of the people. And so because of what he said in verse 5 that Josh talked about last week, let me read that for you. It says, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So rather than the law being the thing that the Jews have kind of relied upon, the, the way in which they have mediated their relationship with God, man, Paul actually goes, no, it's, it's the law that aroused sin in you, right? Like the, the, the law is responsible for that arousal. So listen, the, the, this is a huge paradigm shift for the Jews. So after Paul makes that really strong argument, then the natural question then is, well, is the law sin? If the law caused me to sin, is the law itself sin? And, and Paul's very clear. He says, no, by no means. You're, you're missing the point. So on the one hand, the Jews have overemphasized the role of the law as the mediating factor. Like, we've got to live up to the law in order for God to love us. And Paul's going, no, not only was that never the case, it's certainly not the case today. Okay? So then they swing the pendulum and go, well, then I guess law, the law is sin. If it's not perfection in our means of attaining relationship with God, well, then it must be sin itself. And Paul, I feel like, uh, like a weary father goes, no, stop. Like, don't, don't swing the pendulum. You have to understand the role that the law plays. And so this is the central argument of these five verses. What is the purpose of the law? 
How did it get twisted by sin into something that it was never meant to be? How does it get twisted by sin into something that destroys us? And what is the actual purpose of it? Now, for us, this is uh, this this can feel somewhat uh, distant or kind of historical or anachronistic. Um, it's really not because Paul's use of the word law is not just about the Old Testament, right? So this isn't just him arguing about the Old Testament, but it's really him arguing about the idea of law in and of itself. The idea of what is what is the role of rules in our life, the way God defines the way we should live, how do we interact with it? How do we think about that? Because we think about it really, really differently than ancient Jews did, or even kind of uh, early modern Jews that Paul's talking to here, where they they were uh, a kind of society, an honor-shame society that would immediately defer to law, defer to rules, and build a society around it. Now, us in our kind of late modern uh, Western world, man, rules are not okay. Rules are meant to be broken. Rules are meant to be overthrown. Rules are oppression. Rules are the patriarchy. Rules are all bad, right? And so Paul's not only going to define kind of the role of the law for the Jews that are coming out of this this uh, background, this Judaistic background, but also define the role of rules for us as well. So, first, is the law sin? By no means. Yet, he says, because I, I understand where you might be coming from. I understand how you might have gotten there, why you might be asking that question. Because, no, the, the law is not sin itself. Yet, like you're, you're on to something, Paul's saying. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet, right? So Paul's making a really interesting and I think nuanced argument here to say, no, the law itself isn't sin, but if you think about it, I would never have known what it was to covet if the law had not told me, you shall not covet, right? Now, is he saying, I would never have coveted? No, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying that, that the law gave me the desire for my neighbor's camel or whatever it is, or more likely my neighbor's wife. But, but that like, so that desire was in me because of sin, and we'll get to that. But I wouldn't have named it as coveting. I wouldn't have known that that desire for my neighbor's camel or my neighbor's wife, hopefully those don't get confused, uh, but that, that desire, I would not have known that that was wrong, right? I, I wouldn't have known that that was a thing called covenant. The, the law itself defines what the rules are. Now, I remember as a, a young father, um, when, uh, when I started to have multiple kids, right, uh, I, I had to give rules, make rules that I never thought I would have to say. The most famous one in our family is no feet on the baby, okay? That was a rule that we had to make that I never thought I would have to make, and it was because my son Cole, when we were in the car, would want to put his feet on his sister Penny, just on her face for, you know, reasons that we still don't understand. 
But that was a rule that we had to create. And it created this sense of like, oh, that's not a thing I should do in cold, right? So he would put his feet on Penny's face just because that seemed like a fun thing to do, a good idea, he didn't know it was wrong. I mean, I gotta think he had an idea that that wasn't ideal, but he didn't know it was wrong until we told him no. Okay, so now I have five, and my youngest, Will, uh, is, is doing the same thing all of his other siblings have done, right? So he doesn't know that the night before we're putting our house on the market, you shouldn't take your older sister's chapstick and draw all over the walls and the doors with it. He doesn't know that that's a terrible idea until the moment we tell him no. And we define what it is is good and what it is is not good. So in that sense, the law creates this idea of sin, not in, in the abstract, not objectively creates sin, but it creates the category of sin in the minds of people, right? Which is really significant, not only just kind of philosophically to think about that, but it's an argument I make often with atheist friends, right? And this, the argument goes something like this, without an objective moral reality, you cannot make objective moral claims, right? So let me say it this way, without something outside of us saying, this is what is good, this is what is not good, then how can we, with kind of inside the world, say anything is right or wrong? So if you're an atheist, you don't believe that God exists, therefore there's nothing outside of us that can impose moral demands, so how can you, as a human, say that anything is wrong or that anything is right? This is the flip side of Paul's argument here. If the law, or any law, defines sin, then without the law, there is no sin at all. So you lose the ability to say anything is right or wrong. And, and most honest atheists, like, well, like good thinking Dawkins and Hitchens and Pinker and all of these like smart atheists will admit this. And they bend over backwards trying to create an atheistic morality, which ends up being just purely pragmatism that basically says, well, what is moral is I will scratch your back so that you will scratch mine. It's basically cause and effect morality. Right? Like, I'm not going to murder people because I don't want to be murdered. Or I'm not going to murder people because I don't want to go to prison. Therefore, murder is bad. Well, that's not morality. That's just pragmatism. Don't punch a bigger guy because the bigger guy will hurt you. Right? Like, that's not morality. That's just smart. Right? Playground wisdom. Okay? So this is, this is kind of the flip side of Paul's argument. What the law does, it creates categories of what is good and what is evil. It creates categories in the minds of people of what sin is. So then what is the law's role in sin? Because he's just made this really long argument about how the law aroused sin in us. So does, not, does, this, does the law not bear some culpability for that arousal? He continues in verse 8. But sin, 
seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin is dead. Okay, so what does this mean? Well, let's go back to, to Will or back to any of my children. Um, what happens when you tell a child not to do something? They do it. At least my children, maybe they're particularly evil. It feels that way sometimes. But I remember even my oldest, Lily, when she was little, um, she would play this fun game when she was at the table where she had her little water cup and she would drop it. And we'd go, Lily, don't drop your water. And then she would look at us right in the face, hold the cup out, drop it, and go, oops, over and over and over again. And Lily was and is a very cute little girl. But the rage that builds in those moments when a, a two-year-old just looks at you straight in the eye with that, you know, just like, you know, curse word face, and then drops the cup on purpose for the fourth time, for the fifth time. You'd think we'd stop giving her the cup, but we were new parents. And just goes, oops. No, that's, that's sin. That is sin building in her and coming out of her because we defined what not to do. So we find Will drawing on the wall and we go, Will, stop that. And what does he do? He looks so straight in the eye while he keeps drawing on the wall. So Paul goes, sin, seizing the opportunity, right? Seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. So he goes, I was coveting the camel. I was coveting the wife. I didn't know it was coveting until the law said, hey, that's coveting and that's wrong. You shouldn't do that. And what is my heart's response? You go, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know that that was a problem. No, it's to just want to do it all the more, right? The law allows sin to take on rebellion in a way that the law, without the law, we wouldn't be able to rebel, right? So you think about it, Paul's making this really interesting argument where he goes, without the law, we couldn't rebel because we wouldn't have anything to rebel against, right? We wouldn't have anything to push against. But the moment you give me something to push against, oh, I'm a push, right? That's what's going on in our hearts. That's what sin does within us. Sin and Satan will take whatever it can get. Anything that will turn you from the way of a God, of uh, the way of God. And, and this isn't just a kind of funny kid thing. We all do this all the time. Like we, we want to rebel against the rules and the laws. This is like a major motivation for protest movements for liberation movements, for feminist movements, for all, all kinds of movements, that rebellion against what is sometimes thought of as unjust laws, but is sometimes also just rebellion against law and restriction at all, right? That, that you can't tell me what to do kind of attitude that is kind of irrespective of the validity of the law, of the good of the law, whether or not the, the law itself actually protects you in any way, uh, that doesn't matter often. It's just, you can't tell me what to do. Even if it's bad for me, at least it's my 
choice. Right? We want that freedom. God gives us the rules to the game and the instruction manual for life, and we're offended by it. And so we break the rules, often not because we think the game is better played without the rules, but just because we want to be autonomous beings. You can't tell me what the rules are. We say, I get to define the rules of my own life. I get to define these things for myself, right? It's literally the first sin. The serpent comes to Adam and Eve and says, did God really say, right? He just doesn't want you to be like him. He wants to have that, that, that authority over you. He wants to be in charge of you. He wants to control your life. So he said, don't eat from that tree. Never mind the fact that he gave you his entire creation to enjoy and simply said, just don't eat from that one tree of all the trees, just the one you can't eat. He's just trying to control you. He's just trying to keep you down. Just trying to restrict you, tell you who you are, that you're not a that fruit eater. Doesn't take much. This is one of my, the, kind of my favorite things that we learned from that Genesis 3 story is that literally they had everything, complete freedom, perfect relationship with each other and God and all of nature. God kept one thing from them, and that's all the serpent needed. It's all Satan needed. It didn't take much. There is this innate desire in us to be God. And when Satan and sin gets in and kind of pokes at that thing, man, we fall apart quick. Quick. The moment law is defined, so too is rebellion defined. Paul says, apart from the law, sin lies dead, right? Now, does that mean we don't break God's rules? Sure, but we do so kind of accidentally, right? We don't know any better. If there's no law being told, it's like we can plead ignorance in some sense, right? Because the moment we're aware of the law, man, our rebellion kicks in and we don't even care exactly what the law is. We just don't want to be controlled by it. We don't want to be controlled by anything. This is, this is Paul's argument. Now, verses 9 through 11 are tricky. They're tricky for me to understand, and they are apparently tricky for all the commentators as well. So I want to read 9 through 11, and then we'll, we'll try to get a sense of it. Verse, verse 9, nine I, was I was once alive, alive apart from, from the law, but when, when the commandment came, sin came alive, and, and I died. died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Now, if we're going to take this literally, was there ever a time that Paul was alive apart from the law? I mean... Maybe if you follow kind of my illustration about a kid, you could say yeah, there was a moment of innocence, right? In the sense that um, when Paul was very, very young, as with all of us, there's an innocence to the law in the, in the sense that we, we, we're not intentionally breaking the rules. We just don't even know what the rules are until the first time you hear no, you don't know that there's a no. 
You don't know that there's a law until you hear no. Now, what, what's more likely is that Paul is kind of pulling this out as a, as a hypothetical, right? So he says, when I, before I knew the law, I was once alive. But then when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So it's kind of a hypothetical, kind of laying out the effect of sin and commandment in our life. That they kind of work together in that sense. That Satan cannot create anything on his own, but when God creates the world, hands us the kind of the rules to the game, that Satan then goes, okay, now here's my moment. Right? Like God created in the Latin ex nihilo, out of nothing. Satan can only pervert and break. He cannot create ex nihilo. So sin is always a reaction to law. Sin is always a transgression of law. It is missing the mark, but you can't miss the mark unless there's a bullseye. The law defines that bullseye, and therefore you can miss the mark, right? This is, these are all the metaphors that the Bible uses to talk about sin. And sin is entirely dependent upon God's law. So here's what Paul is saying kind of in summation. God gave us the law to show us the way he created his world to be, but instead of it being a gift that brought me life, sin in me took advantage and deceived me into rebellion. I heard the voice of God and then immediately the whisper of the servant. Serpent. I read the rules and only wanted to break them. So this is, this is what's at war, okay? Remember the initial question was, is the law sin? And Paul goes, no, the law is not sin. Yet, right? Remember in, in verse, uh, the end of verse seven, yet, or but, here's the relationship between law and sin. And then he has spent the last three verses kind of outlining that for us, right? So he's kind of summing up here going, listen, God gave us the law to, to kind of show us the way to be, and instead of us gratefully walking that out, we rebelled. We looked at the law, we looked at the rules, and went, well, that's not, I'm not doing it, right? Because the, the, the conclusion of this in verse 12 is, so the law is holy, he says. The law is holy, the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. So the point of the law was absolutely good because it's a reflection of God's will. People often think of the law as this kind of random mix of rules that God or more likely some old men set up to control humanity and bend them to their will, right? We, we, we sometimes think about the law or think about the rules or morality in that way, is that it's like restrictions imposed upon life to keep control and to bend people towards the will of the rule maker. Now, in most of our human experience, that is absolutely the case, right? When I make rules in my house, they are often, if they're not a direct reflection of the Bible, they are often designed to bend the wills of the people to my own, right? So no terrible music is, is completely defined by me, not by my children, who only love terrible music. 
right? So I, I like to think that I'm trying to bend them to the good in my world, the desire to introduce them to good music, and they continually want to listen to terrible Lego friends, terrible pop, awful music that's super repetitive, and I'm trying to introduce them to jazz and rock and roll and like really good godly stuff, right? So this is, this is mostly true, but when it comes to God's law, it's different. Why? Two reasons. First, the rules are not random because they reflect the creator's vision for his creation, right? This is, this is the rules to the game. So if you ever come into a park at a playground or a recess where there's a bunch of little kids playing basketball or playing soccer or whatever, it is chaos. It's complete chaos because they're not following the rules. I remember being a referee in youth basketball and you're just trying to decide the whole time how many of the rules can they break? How many of the rules am I actually gonna hold them to? Right, where they dribble the ball, hold it, walk around a little bit, start to dribble again, and that's like all kinds of wrong things. And I'm blowing my whistle, I'm teeing them up, I'm tossing them from the game, because they're just not doing it right. It's chaos without the rules. Not only are they the rules, they are also the instruction manual for the machine. Right? And what is an instruction manual for the machine? What, what's its purpose? To keep you from killing yourself, primarily, right? To keep you from hurting yourself, to keep you from misusing the machine for purposes it was not intended for. So when God gives us the law, he's saying, listen, here's the rules of the game. Not so I would control you, but when you watch youth basketball or youth baseball, and then you watch the NBA or Major League Baseball, you go, ah, this is what can happen when you follow the rules of the game. It's better. It's more beautiful. It's more coordinated. It's more fun to watch. All of that is better than when you are watching a game that's breaking all the rules. The rules of the game were defined to make the game work. And so when people are cheating or breaking the rules, it breaks the game. Okay, we've all experienced that when you're in some kind of sports situation and somebody's breaking the rules. The, the person that's grabbing on jerseys and holding people back or whatever the case may be, it, it, it makes the game worse. Okay? And the same for those who are more mechanically minded. The, the instruction manual for the machine is intended for your good. So when you don't read them or when you outright break the rules for the, in the instruction manual, you put yourself and the machine at risk. Okay, so God's law is designed not to constrict, but to release us to enjoy the game, to use the machine the way it was designed to be used. Second, even if the law were meant to control and bend people to the will of the lawmaker, 
The big difference between man and God is that the creator's will, the lawmaker's will, is inherently good. And so being bent to it is for the greatest good of the people. And Icon, if there is anything I can leave you with as your pastor, my, my last sermon as your pastor, it would be this. God is good. God loves you. God is for you. And everything God gives you is for your good. And that's the hard stuff. That's the fun stuff. That's the law. Those are the blessings. It's all for your good. That, that's what undergirds all of Paul's argument. It's why he can sum all of this up and say, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous is good. Why? Because the lawmaker is holy. The lawmaker is righteous. The lawmaker is good. And so certainly what the lawmaker produces is good and for our good. Now, what we do with it, what sin in us makes us want to do with it, that's another question. But the law itself is good. It's there for our protection. It's there for our flourishing. It, it hangs in the balance of simply how do we see it? How do we look at it? Do we trust that it is good? Or do we think our way is better? Do we think we know better? And, and again, the thing I want to leave you with, is proof of the goodness of God. If you remember nothing of any sermon I've ever preached, remember these last words. The greatest proof of the goodness, the holiness, the righteousness of God is that he sent his son to die for you. That he said, here's the law, and we rebel. He said, I promise you the law is good, and we rebel. So the law is for you, and we rebel. Because the law is meant to protect you and keep you and allow you to flourish, and we rebel. And so he goes, I'm going to send you my son because you have been unable and unwilling to abide by the law. And so I will send my son to perfectly abide by the law to demonstrate for you what that flourishing life could look like. I mean, we, we have a test case, right? Like we have a, a, a constant where we can look at the life of Jesus and go, that is it. That's what happens. The life of Jesus is what happens when you obey the law. People are healed. People are led. They learn. They grow. They're raised from the dead. Y'all could be walking on water right now if you would abide by the law. But we saw that constant. We saw that ideal. And we put him to death. And you can say, well, I wasn't there when that happened. But you would. You'd have done the same thing. If you'd been in Pontius Pilate's seat, you would have made the same decision. If you'd been in that crowd, you would have also shouted for Barabbas. You would have. Because you're not better. You're not different. You have the same need for a Savior that every one of us has. And it's been provided for. Jesus made the way where there was no way. That alone, the death of God for you, should be enough evidence. That should be enough of a down payment that we never again question 
the goodness, the righteousness, the holiness of God. And the fact that he is for you. So every time you feel the, the burden of the law, the oppression of the law, the restriction of the law, remind yourself, Jesus died so that I might be free to obey the law. So trust, not in your own will, not in your own discipline, but as you look at your Savior on the cross, may it be the evidence you need to walk faithfully under the law. Not as a means of salvation, but as a response to the salvation you've received. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so very thankful for your life, the example of it, your death that paid for our sin, paid for our rebellion, and your resurrection that empowered us to be able to walk in victory, walk in obedience, not by our own power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit given to us by the power of your resurrection. God, we thank you for that. We pray that in those moments where the law feels like restriction, we would remember your goodness and we would faithfully obey, not because we are such obedient people or even maybe because we're so convinced of its inherent goodness, but because we're convinced of your inherent goodness. And by faith, we walk in obedience. We ask these things in your name. Amen.